إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد تريدن the hadith of Ibn Abbas, we begin with, وَقَالَ ابْنُ عَبَّاسِ أَخْبَرَنِي أَبُوْ سُفْيَانِ إِبْنُ حَرْبِ أَنَّ هِرَقْلِ دَعَا تَرْجُمَانَهُ ثُمَّ دَعَا بِكِتَابِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ فَقَرَأَهُ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ مِنْ مُحَمَّدٍ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ ورسوله إلى هرقل ويا أهل الكتاب تعالوا إلى كلمة سواء بيننا وبينكم الآية In this hadith Ibn Abbas mentions that Abu Sufyan Ibn Harb told him that هرقل Herakl called for an interpreter and then he called for the book of the Prophet what the Prophet had written to him and then he read it and it said Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Min Muhammadin Abdillah وَرَسُولِهِ إِلَىٰ هِرَقَلْ It said, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, from Muhammad Abdullah, the servant of Allah, وَرَسُولِهِ and the messenger of Allah, to هِرَقَلْ That this correspondence, this letter, was addressed in that way. From Muhammad, the servant of Allah, and his messenger to Herakl. And in that, the ayah was quoted to, Ya ahla al-kitab ta'alaw ila kalimatin sawa'in baynana wa baynakum. That, O oh, people of the book, come to a word that is balanced or equal between us a new meaning to the word of Tawheed, to the word of La ilaha illallah, testifying that there is no deity worthy of worship in truth except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a few points as Shaykh al-Thameen rahimahullah ta'ala mentions as benefits surrounding this narration. What's happened in this narration? The Prophet ﷺ has written a letter and sent it as a means of da'wah. As he used to do, ﷺ, he would write letters calling and inviting the leaders and the kings to Islam and send those letters to them 
It's mentioned how some of those leaders were more accepting to these letters and invitations and da'wah to Islam and how some of them were not accepting of this da'wah at all and how some of them ripped up the letters or threw them away. So the Prophet ﷺ, the point being, used to send letters to the kings and the rulers and the various uh, leaders inviting them and calling them to Islam. So in this example, that's what occurs. And in the letter, it begins with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And you will remember, almost every time we start a new book, the authors almost always begin their books with the Basmalah, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And one of the things we always say in explanation of why the authors and the scholars begin their books with the basmalah, with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, is because, scholars always mention because, the Quran, the, the surah of the Quran, the chapters of the Quran, you have it at the beginning of each surah, except Tawbah, and they also mention we do it because, the Prophet used to begin his letters, his correspondences with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And so the scholars, when they used to write their books, often, almost always, would begin them with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And the meaning of it, the meaning of Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And that reminds me, at the conference, we mentioned some names that are impermissible to use from the names of Allah. Normally, or sometimes, with the names of Allah, you can remove the Al and keep the rest of the name. But some names you cannot do that with. You cannot remove the Al and keep the name like Rahman and Khaliq and Bari' and we did also say Rahim. However, that should not have been said. Often you always mention Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, so it comes together. However, in that category, it doesn't. It doesn't. So you should rectify your notes from that lecture. Rahim, without the alif and lam, is allowed. And the evidence? Because the Prophet was described as being Rahim in the ayah in the Quran. In the Quran. 
So in the Quran, the Prophet ﷺ was described as Rahim. Without the L, of course, Rahim. Hence the scholars, they've said, that is okay. The Prophet was described with that title in the Quran. So that isn't in that list. Rectify those notes and let others know regarding that. So here, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. What does it mean then? Uh huh. So Bismillah in the name of Allah and the name Allah. As many scholars say, is the Ismul A'zam, the greatest name of Allah. And there are others too. But Allah, one of the reasons they call this the greatest name of Allah, Allah, an easy way to remember, is because all of the other names of Allah, they return back to the name Allah. How? A very easy example the scholars give. If somebody said to you, Ar-Rahman is one of the names of Allah. True. Ar-Rahim is one of the names of Allah. Al-Ghafoor is one of the names of Allah. Al-Alim is one of the names of Allah. No problem. But if somebody said to you, Allah is one of the names of Al-Alim. Do you ever hear it in that way around? Never. All of the other names return back to the name Allah. So Bismillah in essence is in the name of Allah, in all of the names of Allah in essence. Because all of the other names return back to the name Allah. So in the name of Allah, in the name of Allah, what? In the name of Allah, as they say in English, the most merciful, the most beneficent. But what? In the name of Allah, what? That's why the scholars, they say here, there is something which is mahdhuf. There is something there, which is erased. It's not said. It is not written. But it's there and it's intended. What is missing and what is intended that isn't there? Abda'u bimada. Utabda'ish. Exactly. So what is missing, the mahdhuf, is whatever you are going to do. So Bismillah aktub. Bismillah aqra. Bismillah, and then whatever you're going to do, in the name of Allah, I begin writing this book. In the name of Allah, I begin reading this book. Whatever you're going to do is intended there. But you don't say it, and you don't write it. That is going to be your intention when you're saying it. When you're saying Bismillah to start something, whatever it is, you are starting, that's what you're intending, that I begin in the name of Allah to do whatever this is you're going to do. And then, uh, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, 
two of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the beautiful and perfect names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would begin with the basmala, with bismillahir rahmanir rahim. And then he would say, from Muhammad, from Muhammad, the servant of Allah and the messenger of Allah. The servant of Allah and his messenger. That's a very important phrase. A phrase that highlights a lot regarding our aqeedah uh, and our belief and understanding regarding the Prophet ﷺ. Just that there, Abdullah wa Rasuluh. When you say, Ashhadu anna Muhammadan Abdullahi wa Rasuluh. Abduhu wa Rasuluh. He is the servant of Allah and the messenger of Allah. Abdullah wa Rasulullah. In that phrase is an affirmation of our correct aqeedah and a refutation of the false aqeedah. How so? How so? People say he's made out of light. What's that got to do with the phrase? Almost. The word, the word abd affirms he's a human being. So the first, there's two parts to the statement. Ashhadu anna Muhammadan abdullahi wa rasooluhu. I testify Muhammad is the servant of Allah and his messenger. The servant of Allah, abdullah. Meaning that you testify he is a servant of Allah. He is not Allah himself, nor does he have characteristics, the sifat of Allah in him, nor is he deserving of worship. Rather, he is a servant of Allah, a creation of Allah. He is human as we are human. He would eat and he would drink and he would marry and he would require to answer the call of nature. He was human in that regard. He was the Abdullah in that regard. So that is an affirmation that we do not go into excessiveness, ghulu, and we don't begin to say he was made out of light and that he used to walk without a shadow. Because if you're made out of light, then you're not going to have a shadow because if you're light, then light goes right through you. So they say that he used to walk without a shadow. Can somebody walk without a shadow if the sun is on you? No. So these are exaggerations that they made up, that he's made out of light, and that he was the light which Allah created, and then created the whole universe from his light, and all of these exaggerations. We say no, we are testifying he is the servant of Allah, Abdullah. Not made out of light and any super being and having knowledge of the unseen. Many of them claim that he had knowledge of the unseen. In one regard, you could explain yes. Which regard? The knowledge of the unseen. 
seen that Allah revealed to him. The knowledge of the unseen that Allah gave him. Allah gave the messenger a degree of the knowledge of the unseen. For example, all of the things that the Prophet ﷺ told us about the Day of Judgment. All those things that are going to happen and the signs of the Day of Judgment, they are all from the knowledge of the unseen that Allah revealed to the messenger. So that restricted knowledge of certain things, Allah revealed that to the messenger. But an absolute knowledge of the unseen as they claim, that he had knowledge of the unseen, then that is false. And we know that is false because the evidence is, from the evidences, from the Qur'an, <laughs> so there are evidences in the Quran that the Prophet ﷺ did not have knowledge of the unseen. لَوْ كُنْتُ أَعْلَمُ الْغَيْبِ لَاسْتَكْثَرْتُ مِنَ الْخَيْرِ وَمَا مَسَّنِسْتُ The Prophet said, as the ayah of the Quran says, If I knew the unseen, if I knew the unseen, then I would have done much more good and no harm would have come to me. If the Prophet had knowledge of the unseen, then no harm would have come to him. He would have avoided it before it came to him. And yet in the battle of Uhud, he was struck and his helmet was bent and his tooth was broken and he fell into a pit. How are you going to claim he had knowledge of the unseen? So we say, Abdullah, he is the servant of Allah. But then, we have the second important statement alongside it. He is the servant of Allah and the messenger of Allah. And that is therefore an affirmation of his actual and rightful status. That he is a selected messenger of Allah. He is the seal of all of the prophets and messengers. He was given revelation. There are so many narrations where revelation came there and then. Something would happen and there and then the revelation would come to him. Revelation came to him as Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu said. When the mushrikun were mocking Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu after the night of al-Isra wal-Mi'raj and they were saying, have you heard what your friend says? Have you heard what your companion says? He says he's been up to the heavens and back and to Baytul Maqdis and everything all in one night and he's come back. Mocking Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu said to them, if that's what he says, then I believe him. For indeed, I believe him in things which are even greater than that. I believe that the revelation comes down to him from the heavens. So we affirm he is the messenger of Allah to be followed, to be obeyed in that sunnah, in the, in the halal, and to stay away from the haram. We believe that and we affirm his status and his rank as the highest and the best of all of the messengers, the one who will do the shafa'ah on the day of judgment where no other prophets and messengers can. So in that way, you refute the people who fall short in regards to the right of the Prophet ﷺ. At the head of them, the likes of the Qur'aniyun, 
who reject the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. You say, no, look, Abduhu wa Rasuluhu. He's the messenger of Allah. What does it mean he's the messenger of Allah? That he was given revelation. And that is the sunnah. So you must follow it. And the one who doesn't follow the sunnah, opposes the sunnah, rejects the sunnah, then he is deficient in his statement of him saying, I testify Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. If you testify he is the messenger of Allah, then upon you is ta'atuhu, to obey him then in the revelation that he came to you with from Allah. So that statement, that testimony is important to understand carefully uh, for our correct aqidah and the refutation of those who go into ghulu. On one side, extremism on one side, and the others who fall short in terms of obedience and following the sunnah of the Prophet So in this letter to Hiraqal, the Prophet says to him, or the ayah is quoted, say to the people of the book, Ya Ahl al-Kitab, come to a word between us and between you, meaning the word of Tawheed, the word of La ilaha illallah. In the narration it mentions how an interpreter was brought and he is then going to interpret that letter and within that letter is the ayah that he's going to interpret or translate to. We spoke about translating previously, interpreting previously that the Quran cannot be translated word by word. That would then land you with or give you a translation that doesn't make sense. Because the Qur'an isn't translated word for word. The Arabic language compared to other languages wouldn't work in its construction like that. So rather it is the meanings of the translation. And that's why the copy of Muhsin Khan and Taqiyuddin al-Hilali, that is the best copy to get for the translation of the Qur'an into English. Not any other copies. Get a copy of Muhsin Khan and Taqiyuddin al-Hilali. Both of them together have that copy, meanings of the translations, or something like that, the title of it, Muhsin Khan, Taqiyuddin al-Hilali. Use their translation for the English language. A few points are mentioned here. We spoke about previously the impermissibility of taking the, the Quran to the land of the Kuffar, because if they got it, or we spoke about giving it to the kuffar and that it wasn't permissible because if you give the mushaf to the kafir, he may take that and disrespect it and do things that are not befitting and not honoring of the Qur'an. So is it permissible to take the Qur'an to the land of the kuffar? Because the same threat exists, maybe the kuffar may take that Mushaf from you and then disrespect it and dishonor it. Is it permissible to take the Quran to the land of the Kuffar? The Shaykh says, for da'wah purposes. Here in this letter, there's an element of that. Parts of the Quran were written in that letter, in that correspondence, and sent to the land of the Kuffar. So like that, for da'wah purposes, it is possible. لِلْدَعْوَةِ يَجُوزُ أَنَّ دُعُوَةِ 
زعماء الكفر بما نكتبه نحن ونستشهد لذلك بالآيات So it is permissible to call the leaders of kufr to give them da'wah with our writings and in those writings we may well use evidences of the ayat of Quran that we write in there وَهُنَاكَ فَرْقٌ بَيْنَ أَنْ يُرْسَلَ الْمُصْحَفْ إِلَيْهِمْ and there's a difference between sending the Qur'an, a copy, a mushaf to them, and this type of thing in writing to them and using ayat in the midst of that writing as da'wah to them. There's a difference between the two acts. One just sending a Qur'an to them, a mushaf to them, and the other uh, writing to them and quoting ayat as evidences and giving them da'wah. Another small issue, هل يمكن أن يقرأ المصلي القرآن في الصلاة بالمعنى? Is it permissible for somebody to read the Quran in their prayer after the Fatiha? To read some by meaning. By meaning. Rather than the exact words. Is that permissible? الجواب لا يمكن. That is not possible. فالصلاة يجب أن يقرأ أو يقرأ الإنسان القرآن فيها باللغة العربية لأنه متعبد بتلاوته فإن لم يستطع قرأ الذكر الذي يكون بدلا عن القراءة In the prayer you must recite the Quran in the Arabic language uh, and it cannot be done in any other language because you are in reciting it doing an act of worship Reciting the Qur'an in the Arabic itself is an act of worship in the prayer. So you cannot do that in any other language or by meaning. Then after that, what about also holding the Qur'an when praying? Holding a copy of the Qur'an, a mushaf, whilst praying. No. If you have to, then it's the Nawafil prayers, but not in the obligatory prayers. So you're saying in the obligatory prayers, you can never hold the Mus'haf. In supererogatory prayers, if there's a need, you can. Yes. Okay. Anybody else? I mean, this issue is going to come up basically in Ramadan, when people like to hold the Mus'haf. You even see it on the live streams of the Taraweeh in Mecca and Medina, and there's people in the rows following the Imam with the Mus'haf next to them, uh, in front of them, and they're praying the Taraweeh prayer, but they're following along with the Imam, looking at it, what he's reading. That type of thing, is it permissible or not? It is not. The only time you can hold a mushaf, the imam for example, or somebody behind is in times of necessity. And it's really only going to happen in taraweeh, basically. So in that type of scenario, or the night prayer generally, and in that type of scenario, if there was nobody who can lead the prayer, nobody has the ability to lead the prayer, then yes, somebody can lead the prayer with the mushaf, or... There is somebody who can lead the prayer, but there's nobody else who is able to check. There's no other person who has memorized, and the imam 
isn't confident, then yes, somebody can be appointed to follow along. One person can be appointed to follow along with the Mus'haf in case the Imam gets stuck and makes mistakes. But otherwise, not really. It's not permissible to just hold the Mus'haf and follow along. In the prayer, you're supposed to be focusing. Focusing on the prayer, focusing on what's being said, not reading along, holding a copy of the Qur'an, a Mus'haf, and turning the pages over in the prayer. That is not correct and that is not what you should do. The scholars say, do not hold a Mus'haf and follow along, or in these days on your phone, flicking through as the Imam is reading, then that is not to be done. If a person is praying the night prayer by himself, <clears throat> you pray the night prayer. But you only have a very little bit of Qur'an, a very small amount of Qur'an. You only know, for example, Surah Al-Ikhlas or a few small chapters. And you like to pray the night prayer long. But without the Mus'haf, all you're going to do basically is keep repeating and repeating those. Maybe just Amma or something that you know, that's all you can do. You're just going to keep repeating and repeating and repeating and there's nothing else you can do. So in that situation, can you hold a Mus'haf? In that one, the scholars say, okay, if you're praying the night prayer and you don't have enough memorized, you're just going to have to keep repeating and repeating otherwise, then yes, you can hold the Mus'haf to get through larger portions of the Qur'an in your prayer. But that's just those necessity types of situations. Generally in the Taraweeh, behind the Imam, even though you see it on the live stream, some people doing it, etc., that is not correct. You do not hold the Mus'haf in the Taraweeh to follow along with the Imam. Then Al-Imam Al-Bukhari says, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدِ بْنُ بَشَّارِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عُثْمَانِ بْنُ عُمَرِ We're on the topic of the Qur'an and all the issues they come up. A person finishes reading the Qur'an, then what do they do sometimes? They finish the Qur'an, close it up and everything, and then before putting it back on the shelf, kiss the Qur'an before putting it back. Is that a sunnah? Is that something established? Is that what you're supposed to do? It is not established as a sunnah. It is not established as a sunnah that the last thing, you kiss the Qur'an and then put it back on the shelf. That is not proven as a sunnah to do. What about when you're actually reading the Qur'an? Should you hold it with your right hand or should you hold it with your left hand? Or does it matter? In your right hand or in your left hand? With your right hand. Left hand so you can do what? Right hand to do what? To put your finger on it you mean? So hold it with the left hand so that your right hand can put the finger on and change the pages? Anybody else? Any fatwas from Yorkshire? <laughs> no fatwas from Yorkshire? Better to use your right. you can use your left. So the scholars, they say, there's nothing in the sunnah that stipulates anything particular in that. There's nothing in the sunnah specifically stipulating that you should use your right hand or you should use your left or anything like that. So in that case, there are general evidences 
Generally, we know that the Prophet ﷺ, with all of the good things, that he would do all of the good things with the right hand and reading the Quran, holding the Mus'haf is obviously in that category. So some scholars will say, therefore, it is preferable that you should use your right hand. That is the, the main hand in holding the Quran and uh, 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 to read the Quran. But it's not a problem. As Sheikh bin Ba said, for example, if there was an issue or your hand did get tired, you could transfer the weight across and hold it on your left hand. It wouldn't be a problem. There isn't any stipulation as such that you have to do one or the other. And that's with a few things. Using the miswak, which hand should you use when you use the miswak? The siwak with your right hand or with your left hand? With your left hand? Curing your teeth? No, no, no. Cleansing you. Alright, so the left hand is used for purposes of purification. Like when you use the toilet, you're supposed to use your left hand to clean yourself afterwards. So the left hand is used typically for cleaning and purification and those types of things. Using the siwak is an act of cleaning and purifying your mouth so therefore use the left hand any other opinion we just mentioned before about the good things the prophet used to do with his right hand using the siwak is that a sunnah a good thing to do purifies and cleans your mouth etc is that a good thing to do it is, so you could equally argue, therefore you should use your right hand. And so both of those have been mentioned, there's nothing stipulated in the sunnah. Nothing stipulated in the sunnah, that argument would work for the left hand, this argument would work for the right hand. The narration now though, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدِ بْنُ بَشَّارِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عُثْمَانِ بْنِ عُمَرْ قَالَ أَخْبَرَنَا عَلِي بْنُ مُبَارَكَ عَنْ يَحْيَ إِبْنْ أَبِي كَثِيرَ عَنْ أَبِي سَلَمَ عَنْ أَبِي هُرَيْرَةَ قَالَ كان أهل الكتاب يقرؤون التوراة بالعبرانية ويفسرونها بالعربية لأهل الإسلام فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا تصدقوا أهل الكتاب ولا تكذبوهم وقولوا آمنا بالله وما أنزل إلينا وما أنزل الآية In this narration of Abu Huraira he says that the people of the book, they used to recite or read the Torah in Ibraniyyah, in Hebrew. And then they used to explain it in Arabic to the people of Islam, to the Muslims. They used to read it in Hebrew and then explain it to the Muslims in Arabic. So the Prophet said, don't believe the people of the book and don't belie them. You can't say what they are telling you is correct and accurate and true, but you can't say what they are saying is incorrect and inaccurate. Neither this nor that. And the ayah continues for those before us, that we believe in what has been revealed to us, and to that which was revealed before us, meaning we believe this is all the speech of Allah, Kalamullah, 
But of course we know that the Kalamullah that they were given, the Torah, the Injil was distorted and altered. But the original Kalamullah, all of it is Kalamullah, of course. And we accept that. هذا فيه دليل على أنه يمكن تحريف المعنى. This narration highlights, therefore, it is possible to distort the meaning of something that those individuals were not trusted in their explanation from one language to another. That there can be distortion made in that. And so the Prophet said to them, don't believe them, but neither belie them. وَمَعْلُومٌ أَنَّ التَّوْرَاتِ النَّازِلَةِ مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ حَقًّا يَجِبُ أَنْ تُصَدَّقُ the Torah, the original Torah, that is truth, revelation that came from Allah. And we believe in that. But the people of the book distorted it and changed it. That's one point. That's one point. فهنا يعتري إخبار هؤلاء عن التورات بلغة العربية شيئاً. The other point is that maybe when they are explaining it, then they may distort their explanations of it. So the Prophet ﷺ said, "Don't believe them, nor belie them." And the point here is الشيء الأول أنه ربما يكون النص المترجم إلى العربية محرفة. That when they translate it and explain it into Arabic, they may have distorted it. And secondly, رُبَّمَا يَكُونُ النَّصُ بَاقِيًا عَلَى مَا هُوَ عَلَيْهِ لَكِنْ يُحَرَّفَ الْمَعْنَى Maybe the actual words that they translated from their Hebrew were translated accurately into Arabic, but then the explanation that they gave of it was a distortion of it. And that we've mentioned many a time going through this book with the people of innovation when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah. How they will take ayat of the Qur'an, but then they will distort the meanings of them and the explanations of them. That's why we have to be careful of the narrations of the people of the book. That was at the time of the Prophet that the Muslims were being told, be careful of what they narrate to you, what they translate for you from their Torah and what they explain from their Torah. Be careful of that. At that time, at the time of the Prophet what therefore the Shaykh says now, over a thousand years on from that, the distortions are going to be even greater in what they've done. وَالْيَوْمْ أَشَدٍ يَجِبُ أَنْ نَحْتَرِزَ مِنَ الْيَهُودِ وَالنَّصَارَى فِيمَا يَبْثُونَهُ لَنَا مِنْ أَفْكَارِ أَوْ غَيْرِهَا وَيَجِبُ أَنْ نَحْتَرِزَ مِنْهُمْ أَشَدٍ مِنْ احْتَرَازِ النَّاسِ مِنْهُمْ فِي عَهْدِ الرَّسُولِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ So these days we have to be even more careful. Somebody comes along and tells you now this is a verse from the Torah, and we know that the Torah was revelation from Allah, the speech of Allah, just like the Quran. But be careful when they come and tell you now this is the Torah and this is a verse from the Torah because we know that over time distortion has occurred in the translations or in the explanations or in the actual text of it itself. 
So a person has to be careful and not take that at face value. And in fact, basically the rule is what we find in the Torah, what we find in the Injil, if it matches up exactly with what something we find in the Quran, then we know that is correct. If there is something that they quote and you find uh, from the Torah, from the Injil, and that exact same point is in the Quran, some exact same point or some ruling, and it's exactly in the Quran, then we know that is legitimate. But anything you find which cannot be established in the Quran or the Sunnah, then we don't reject it because like we said at that time, sometimes the rulings and the Sharia were different. So in those ones, we have to leave it as it is. We can't accept or reject that is left as it is. If there are blatant contradictions to Tawheed, then we know that is something definitely changed and altered because Tawheed was the same for everyone. So that is a small point regarding that. Then the next narration, قال البخاري حدثنا مسدد قال حدثنا إسماعيل عن أيوب عن نافع عن ابن عمر رضي الله عنهما قال أوتي النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم برجل وامرأة من اليهود قد زنيا فقال لليهود ما تصنعون بهما قالوا نصخم وجوههما ونخزيهما قال فأتوا بالتوراة فتلوها إن كنتم صادقين فجاءوا فقالوا لرجل ممن يرضون يا أعور اقرأ فقرأ حتى انتهى على موضع منها فوضع يده عليه قال ارفع يدك فرفع يده فإذا فيه آية الرجم تلوح فقال يا محمد إن عليهما الرجم ولكننا نكاتمه بيننا فأمر بهما فرجما فرأيته يجانئ عليها الحجارة عليها الحجارة In this narration it mentions that a man and a woman from the Jews fornicated and they were brought to the Prophet So the Prophet said to the Jews, what are you going to do with them? These two that have fornicated from amongst you. They said, That we are going to, to blacken their faces and humiliate them. So the Prophet said to them, bring the Torah and recite it if indeed you are truthful. Meaning, if indeed this ruling of yours is in your Torah, bring it and recite it. So they came, and then they said to a man from amongst them that they were pleased with Ya A'war, read. So he read until he got to a certain part. And when he got to a certain part, as he was reading, he put his hand over it. So then it was said, remove your hand, raise your hand. So when he raised his hand, in the Torah it mentioned regarding the stoning. It was there, he was hiding it, raise your hand and it was there. فَقَالَ يَا Muhammad. He said, oh Muhammad, indeed it is a stoning upon them. But we conceal that amongst ourselves. It is the stoning, but we conceal that. And so then the command was given to stone them.
The point of this narration is فَأْتُوا بِالتَّوْرَاتِ فَتْلُوهَا وَهُمْ سَوْفَ يَتْلُونَهَا عَلَيْنَا بِالْعَرَبِيَّةِ When the Prophet said to them, bring the Torah and recite it. When they brought it and they were going to recite it, it was going to be recited in, the actual Torah was in Hebrew. But then to recite it to them, they would have to translate it into the Arabic. وَكَانَ الرَّجْمُ الرَّجْمُ الزَّانِي حِكْمًا شَرْعِيًّا فِي التَّورَاتِ Stoning the fornicators, that was a ruling in from the Torah even. لَكِنْ كَثُرَ الزِّنَا فِي أَشْرَافِهِمْ وَالْعِيَادُ بِاللَّهِ However, in those times, fornication was something that became widespread in their leaders, in their honorable folk. فَشَقَّ عَلَيْهِ مَنْ يَرْجُمُوا كُلَّ يَوْمٍ شَرِيفًا مِنْهُمْ so it became very difficult for them, embarrassing, humiliating that the leaders in their people, the, the, the noble ones as they saw them, they were engaging in this and they would have to go and stone them. became embarrassing and humiliating for them as a people. فَقَالَ لَهُمْ عُلَمَاءُ الظَّلَالِ So then their scholars, inverted commas, of misguidance, said to them, لَا حَاجَةَ لِلْرَجَمْ he said to them, there's no need for the stoning. There is no need for the stoning. We'll give you a new law instead. And that is to, to blacken their faces and to humiliate them. That'll do. Rather than taking these noble folk from amongst you, the honorable folk from amongst you, and then having to stone them, and that brings humiliation upon you all and your tribes, etc. وَتَسْخِيمُ الْوَجْهِ يَعْنِي تَسْوِيدُهُ وَالْخِزِي قَالُوا إِنَّهُمْ يُرْكَبُونَ أو يَرْكِبُونَ الزَّانِ وَالزَّانِيَ عَلَى حِمَارِ وَيَجْعَلُونَ وَجْهَ أَحَدِهِمَا إِلَى دُبَرِ الْحِمَارِ وَوَجْهَ الثَّانِي إِلَى وَجْهِ الْحِمَارِ وَيَطُوفُونَ بِهِمَا فِي الْأَسْوَاقِ They said the new law, forget the stoning, just darken their faces, etc. and Humiliate them. And what was the humiliation? That they would put this man and woman who fornicated onto a donkey, one of them facing backwards towards the anus of the donkey, the other one the other way, and then that donkey would take them around the streets and this would be their humiliation. And of course, sitting on a donkey and being humiliated for a while around the streets, and then back home again, that is obviously far less of a punishment and a ruling than being stoned. So their, their, their inverted commas scholars gave them this ruling, forget the stoning, just do that and you're done. So they were hiding the stoning. And so they persisted upon that way. But they were in fear and worry and concern because they knew what they were doing. They were concealing the law of Allah, concealing the revelation they'd been given. They knew they were distorting the texts, hiding the reality and making up their own new laws. And this is the meaning of the narration where the Prophet said that you people, you used to take them in the ayah in the Quran too, that you used to take them as your lords, you used to take your rabbis and your monks as your gods, your lords. What's the meaning of that? That when their rabbis and their monks used to decree a new law outside of the revelation they'd been given, 
then they would follow them in that new law. And that was the meaning of them taking their rabbis amongst as gods. Besides Allah, they were dictating to them what the revelation should be, what the laws and the sharia should be, and they were following them in that. لأنهم يعلمون أنهم محرفون فلما بعث النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وقدم المدينة جاءوا إليه وقالوا لعلكم تجدون عند هذا الرجل يعني فرجا وهم متلاعبون متلاعبون يريدون أن يأخذوا من الرسول ما يروق لهم والباقي يدعونه So they knew that they were doing wrong and they were distorting the facts and when the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم came to Medina because remember in those days Medina had a lot of Jews there so when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, the Jews, they went to him and they said, maybe that, you know, you can give us some ruling where we can find a way out for these people. And they were just going to listen to what the Prophet told them, whatever was going to work, they would take that part, and whatever didn't work, they were going to leave it. وَكَانَ مِمَّنْ أَسْلَمَ مِنَ الْيَهُودِ مِنْ أَحْبَارِ الْيَهُودِ عَبْدُ From the ones who accepted Islam from the rabbis of the Jews, uh, Abdullah ibn Salam radiallahu anhu, عليهم, and he knew of course, because he was from the rabbis of the uh, Jews before, and then he became a Muslim, he knew what they were concealing, he was with them before, he knew that they were concealing the stoning, so then, Tawrat, so he requested for the Torah to be brought. The Prophet commanded for it to be brought. And this was in. What's the word in English? I always forget. Consultation. Consultation, maybe. Consultation, when they consulted, it appears that this was all done in consultation with the Prophet. And Abdullah ibn Salam, because he was the one who knew that information, having been with the Jews and a rabbi before. Meaning, this whole story, we're talking about this story right now. When those two Jews came, the man and the woman who'd been fornicating, Abdullah ibn Salam was a Muslim already now, he knew what the Jews were up to. And so he consulted with the Prophet and asked him to get the Torah to be brought. And so the Prophet ﷺ said to them, bring the Torah and let's see. And that's when all this exposition then occurred. Uh, and then skipping to the point here, وَفِهَادَ دَلِيلٌ عَلَى وُجُوبِ إِقَامَةِ الْحَدِّ عَلَى الْيَهُودُ وَالنَّصَارَى لَكِنْ إِنْ كَانَ ذَلِكَ وَاجِبًا فِي شَرِيعَتِهِمْ وَكَانَ الشَّيْءُ حَرَامًا فَيَجِبُ عَلَيْنَا إِقَامَةَ الْحُدُودِ عَلَيْهِمْ فِيمَا يَعْتَقِدُونَ تَحْرِيمَهُ دُونَ مَا يَعْتَقِدُونَ حِلَّ it is upon the Muslims to establish the rulings upon the Jews and the Christians upon what their revelation indicated. So for example, if there is something haram from their laws and they do it, then under the Muslim rulership, it is implemented the, the punishment upon them. Alcohol, for example, they drink it. In a Muslim country, you cannot allow that to occur on a public level in any way. But if privately they somehow got it and they were doing it, then that is for them, for them in their belief, that's permissible. 
So the ruling is established when something is done that is established as haram for them too. كذلك أيضا إقامة الحدود عليهم واجبة فيما يعتقدون تحريمة. So if they view something as impermissible and they do it, then the establishment of the ruling occurs upon them. That's where we're going to stop today. The next narration next week begins with the hadith about reciting the Quran that a person who can recite fluently gets a reward and a person who struggles and stutters in reciting the Quran still has reward, in fact has two rewards, one for trying and one for the uh, actual reading. One for reading and one for the effort being put into that reading. Any questions or anything else to add before we round off? Putting the Qur'an on the floor. The Qur'an, we know we have to honor the Qur'an, we have to respect the Qur'an. We cannot do anything that dishonors the Qur'an. But if you're sitting in a masjid uh, and for a moment, for example, you put the mushaf down onto the floor, Allah it does not appear to be the case or the understanding of people that this is an act of disrespect on the mosque floor. We're not talking about outside on the street or anything else. Everybody would do that as an act of disrespect. But in the masjid, you're just there and you put it down for a moment. It probably isn't that same level. Even then, you would say, as a matter of respect of the, for the Qur'an and honoring the Qur'an, you wouldn't put it on the floor. Why would you put it on the floor? For what reason? If you need to do something for a moment, put it onto the shelf or put it on to the, the chairs as they call them, the, 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 the flip stand things. You wouldn't really need to put the Qur'an on the floor. So overall, you could say, as a means of respect and what is better, is that you don't put the mushaf on the floor. But if it occurred on the mosque floor, Allah alam, I don't know if that is considered, or it would be said to be an act of disrespect on the mosque. Can you make notes on the Qur'an? No. On the mushaf, you are not supposed to make notes on it. This is a fatwa of the scholars. I don't remember who, maybe Shaykh al or someone from the scholars. They gave a fatwa that you cannot make notes on the Qur'an, on the mushaf. Because sometimes people are learning tajweed or they are learning memorization. And some of the teachers, they tell you, this mistake, you always make it every week. Make a line under that and make sure you learn it. But you're not supposed to, not on the mushaf. Scholars say, if for, for that reason you're learning, you're memorizing, on a separate piece of paper, just keep it there or, or, or make a note of the page number and make your notes of what the issues are, but don't write on the mushaf. Anything else? Go on. Because Allah's name is Abdul Rahim, can you put your first name as Abdul and your second name is Rahim? Is that permissible? No. You should, if your name is Abdul Rahim, then you should put that on your documents as Abdul Rahim. Because in the culture we live in, otherwise people are going to say you are Abd and your father's name is Rahim or your family name is Rahim. And even in the Arabic culture, it doesn't work like that. Because, you know, this thing about how we have names now, for example, uh, Abdul Rahim and imagine your father's name is Khalid. So now on the papers, you're going to be Abdul Rahim Khalid, for example. 
in the in the Arabic way of doing it, in the Islamic way of doing it, in fact, forget Arabic way, the Islamic way of doing it has always been that you have the Ibn associated in it. So Abdul Rahim Ibn Khalid. And some of the scholars they say it's a strange thing these days that people and the documents are just Abdul Rahim Khalid. What do you mean? Where's the, who's the son, father? What's happening? They say it's supposed to be Abdul Rahim Ibn Khalid. Of course, that's not something which is an obligation or anything, but it is just something mentioned. But the least we say is that you should have that as one name, Abdul Rahim, as one name, then your father's name, and then if you want the family name on the document, but your name as Abdul Rahim, one thing. Not as two separate parts, Abd and then Rahim. Then Rahim, according to the authorities and the documents and officially, is your middle name. If you're going to put your family name at the end too. So that should be one, not separated. Based upon that question then, with legal documentation, would you put Ibn as middle name then? You can do. It's not a necessity, but that's something scholars, they say, they found it strange that this has become the culture. But it's allowed, it's not a problem, you can do it. Abdul Rahim Khalid and the documents, no problem. If you want to add the bin in there, the bint in there as an official thing, you can do it. No, no, nothing wrong with that as well, obviously with the documentation for the, the, where we live now, people are going to assume that's a middle name and things like that. But it can be done. And if you don't do it, it's not a problem. Some people with those names are classic, just for the ease in work, in school, they just become known as Abdul or Abdi mm. and that's just what they're known as even Hatta, even between the Muslims is that allowed or should they emphasize that no, it's Abdul Salam or it's Abdul in some of the uh, in Egypt and some places you become known, anybody whose name is Abdullah, Abdurrahim, any one of the, the names with the Ta'beed then those people, they just become known as Abdu Abdu, huh? He's Abdul Rahman, Abdul Aziz, Abdul Abd, all of the names of Allah. He's just Abdu. But this thing, it's not suitable. It is not suitable, really, to be known as just Abd uh, or Abdi. Abdi doesn't even really make sense. Abdu at least makes sense. But all these things, it's not really suitable. A person's name is Abdullah, Abdul Rahim, Abdul Rahman. You are the Abd of your Lord. So to summarize it, just to Abd. It doesn't appear to be suitable and appropriate to do that. It's a common thing, widespread everywhere, Abdi, Abdu. But it would uh, clearly appear to be more suitable and, and appropriate that you mention the full name of that person and you honor that person with his full name instead of Abdi, Abdu, which technically just means slave. Slave, come here. So it wouldn't really be suitable. Suitable. Hmm. It is allowed, it is allowed. Here, like for example, in the mosque and you're studying and you've got some books with you, you put them on the floor. It's okay because the mosque is considered as a place of respect. But if you went outside in the street and you put your books on the floor, then clearly people understand this is not respectful. But in the mosque, you're studying, etc., you put them down, it's not a problem. No, if there is a difference of opinion between the scholars on an issue, then how do you decide what you're going to do? Firstly, it depends what the difference of opinion is. Is it a difference of opinion? I mean, there's no such thing as a difference of opinion in Aqidah. That's gone. Aqidah is one. There's no difference of opinion in Aqidah, that you believe this or you believe that. But differences of opinion in other issues, 
rulings, issues, is this halal, is this haram, in fiqh, do you do it this way, do you do it that way, in those types of things, you have to examine what the scholars are saying, you look at what their explanations are for that given issue, and then you decide, you look at it, and you think, okay, this seems to make sense more, and that's what you just stick with then. You're not expected to go do a research paper yourself and analyze. You look at the statements of the scholars, you read into what they're saying and the explanations they are giving, and to you then it appears to be that this is stronger, not the one that appeals to you because it's easier for you and you want to, uh, because you want to follow your desires with a certain fatwa. Generally taking something of ease is okay. If there are two exactly the same, you just, there's nothing you can differentiate. It is generally then allowed for you to take one, even if that one is the easier one. Taking ease is something allowed in that case. But you can't take ease from the fatwas of the scholars if what you're doing is basically just following and taking the fatwas that suit you. That okay, that fatwa is good for me, that's better because I can do X, Y, and Z. And uh, I prefer something, something, so this fatwa works for me here. You can't pick and mix like that. You genuinely, sincerely look at an issue, what the scholars are saying, and one of them appears to be more stronger for you than you do it. Giving da'wah to a non-Muslim, using ayat of the Torah and the Injil, what's the issue primarily? That unless they are ayat that are from the category of the ones that match exactly with what we find in the Quran, so you know they are authentic. All the others, you don't know if they are definitely or not. The ones which match, you could use those, because they are exactly what is in the Quran. So you can say, to look, in your Torah, it tells you about Tawheed. And in the Injil here, it tells you about Tawheed. You could use those which are exactly the meaning of Tawheed example. But other ayat, you would only be able to use them as they say that you say to them well in the Torah or in the Bible it does say X Y and Z you don't necessarily have to have the opinion that this is definitely authentic but it's a way of forming an argument to them that look in the Bible it tells you X Y and Z which therefore indicates you should believe in X Y and Z but it's not something you should open up to because we just don't know the level of distortion and the level of what's being said. And so to use an ayah or a verse from their books which you don't know yourself and don't believe yourself whether it's absolutely true or not, then you're establishing an argument which isn't going to be that solid from the beginning. So it's probably better not to. And especially if uh, with the, uh, uh, the Bible, the Torah as well, one of the biggest arguments you can use with them, which will negate the ability to use the verses from them, which is stronger though, is the argument of them being able to prove that the book they have is the word of God. If you use that argument from the very beginning, it takes away their whole basis of their religion. So for the Christians, the whole basis obviously is the Bible. The Jews, they have the Torah. Uh, okay, I'll give you an example. They were uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness. Two of those, they came once. Knock, knock, knock on the door. So then they come out and they start giving da'wah. 
giving some da'wah to come to uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness and you'll be in paradise and they always show you those pictures of people in paradise, you've seen those leaflets, beautiful pictures and all these types of things. So then uh, they were giving some da'wah and then I said to them, okay, so khalas, uh, Christianity or this version of your Christianity, etc. Which, uh, what's the holy text? So they quoted a particular Bible, there are all the different names of the Bibles. They gave a name of their Bible, this is the Bible that we use, the King James, this, that, the other, whichever one it was. So then uh, I said to them, okay, but okay, you have this Bible. But the Catholics and the Protestants and this sect and that sect, they've all got different versions of Bibles that they use. There's another version called the XYZ version and another one called the XYZ one. There's all these different versions of the Bible. Which one of them is the Word of God? Which one of them is the Word of God? The King James or the King this and the King that and all these different versions of the Bible. Which one is the Word of God? They said, well, well, you know, we believe this is the Word of God. I said, okay, but if a Protestant comes to my house tomorrow, he's going to say his version, he believes is the Word of God. How am I supposed to accept Christianity and convert if I don't even know where the Word of God actually is? And really, to be honest, that was the end of the conversation. There's nothing else really you're going to be able to do if you can't even prove that your holy text is holy. You can't even prove that your holy text is the word of God. Because you say to them in Christian, I mean at least, at least with all of the sects in Islam, the Quran is one. Uh, with the exception of the extreme Rafid and the Quran, you know, whatever else. But generally the Quran otherwise is one. There's no difference in that. But with the Christians, with all these different Bibles, which one is the word of God? If somebody wants to become a Christian, they say, well, we believe it's this one. You believe it's that one, but then other Christians believe it's a different one. So you can't all be upon the word of God. One of you must be, the others aren't. Which one is it? And they have no way to prove it. They have no chain of narration. They have no isnad. Isnad is something Allah blessed this ummah with. That is not with the Christians. They don't have a chain of narration to their Bible. They don't have chains of narration to their Torah. So if you can um, properly organize this argument, the argument of establishing whether your holy text is holy, which they cannot do, it's impossible, it breaks down a huge proportion of their argument. A huge amount of their argument is going to be okay in, the, in verse this and chapter this, it says this, that, the other. If from the very beginning you say, okay, I'll, I'll take all of this da'wah you're giving me, but you need to prove to me that this Bible is the Word of God. How are you going to do that? So then it becomes a problem for them. But there's many ways. But I would not use that as a primary method of da'wah. Using verses from their book. If afterwards at some stage in the da'wah, you're going to then have to explain to them that your books were distorted and changed. Because then for the ones who don't understand properly and they want to argue, they say, well, why are you quoting verses here and verses there? And it can become complicated. All right, we'll continue. Go on. Last one. It can be used. Scientific evidences as secondary and supplementary evidences. Secondary and supplementary evidences only. Because scientific evidences, today they are scientific, tomorrow they might not be. Today science is upon the opinion of X, Y, and Z, which matches exactly with what the Quran says. So we know their scientific opinion today is accurate. But when they do their research and analysis and in 10 years time, all of a sudden, it's changed. The scientific opinion is different now. So now all of a sudden, 
you've been giving da'wah for 10 years saying, look, even science says that the Quran, what the Quran says. And then later on in 10 years, a huge announcement in the scientific world that was wrong. So now all these people you gave da'wah to, what's happened to your argument? So you don't use science as a primary basis. That is just something as your backup, as your extra on the side. That look, even science says X, Y, and Z, but that is only supplementary and secondary. You don't use those as primary arguments. They all, I mean, especially now, how much they are changing all of their science and their opinions and what they put into textbooks, the number of planets. All of a sudden, we lost a planet in the last few years. <laughs> all of these different things that they quote and they say, right now, I just discovered this the other day. There are people, even though this is not in their doctrines yet, but who knows how long before it will be. Apparently, there is not just two genders anymore. Forget about three or four. There are apparently 71 titles you can give yourself, unofficially. They haven't indoctrinated it yet, but there are on, on, on various groups and societies in the world now, 71 choices of gender you can be. And when we were just kids now, 30 years ago in school, they were telling us there's just two. That's what we all, we've always known, and that's what humanity has always known. But now all of a sudden, there's 71 different choices you can make as to what you are. So, uh, science is only a secondary and a supplementary evidence. Don't use that as primary arguments. We'll round it off on that then, inshallah ta'ala, next week again, straight after Isha.